We're going to go to the Lord in prayer this morning. And we're going to ask that, um, you know, we're going to use an image of farming. How many know we're not there yet? We're in the middle of winter, but come spring, what's the first thing the farmers are going to do? They're going to break up the soil, isn't that right? And actually, this, uh, Hosea says, let's break up fallow ground. So how many realize that if we're going to really receive what God wants to speak into our lives today, we have to open our hearts to that? Do you believe that? I mean, you can shut down and just, you know, block everything out. You don't get anything. And then you walk away and go, I got nothing from it. Or you can say, hey, I'm going to tune in and listen to what God wants to speak into my spirit. And I believe we can hear the voice of God speaking into our lives. And that's when change begins to happen in our lives. Let's pray to that end, that God would open us up, that we'd hear his voice, that we would respond to him. Father, I thank you today, as Hosea reminds us, break up the fallow ground, Lord. And we pray today that the soil of our hearts would be open, that we hear the beautiful words, your living word come into our spirit. And what is applicable to our personal lives would be right into our innermost being. We'd hear your voice, that you would direct our steps. We would know your purposes and ways for our lives. We respond so that we would receive healing and help and restoration, especially as we're going to talk about relationships. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen, amen. You may be seated. We're going to turn in our Bibles to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. I will come back to the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes, but I want to focus on this theme this morning. I'm going to talk about two young men. Their names are Esau and Jacob. They're twins. And actually, it's interesting that before they were even born, that God had a distinctly different purpose for each one of their lives. And I believe that that's so important to understand that when God fashioned us and designed us and created us, he gave us with different abilities, with a different design in mind, with a different purpose in mind. And yet, as we're going to see, conflict emerged between these two boys, which were twins. And, you know, a lot of studies on twins, and twins are very close. But these guys were, there was a battle for supremacy going on right in the womb. As a matter of fact, Jacob reached out his hand to grab his brother's heel, and it just seemed like a fitting picture of what was about to transpire in their lives. And then their mom and their father, Isaac and Rebekah, develop what I would call poor parenting skills. And you'll say, well, what, what does that mean? Well, you see, Rebecca really loved Jacob. He was kind of a thinker, quiet, homebody, herdsman. Meanwhile, Esau really favored the firstborn son. Uh, sorry, Isaac favored Esau, the firstborn son. He was a hunter, probably a man's man kind of a guy. And so the dad gravitated to the first son and Rebecca gravitated to the second son. Well, you know, showing partiality to your children is a recipe for disaster. And we can see a little bit of polarization happening. How many know kids are really sensitive? They pick up on, you know, whose mom's favorite, whose dad's favorite kind of stuff. And Esau was certainly consumed, what I call, with the moment. He wasn't really worried about what tomorrow held. As a matter of fact, the Bible gives us a very clear picture that Esau was more a person that was, I would call him the secular man. He's the person in concern with this life, and that's all there is. Well, Jacob had a heart to really, you know, receive from Almighty God. He wanted God's blessing. But what we're going to see about Jacob, even though he thought about the future, he thought about the blessing of God, he didn't always approach it in the right way. 
And that can be true sometimes even as believers that we can go after the things of God but we come at it the wrong way and we do it at the expense of other people and it creates great alienation in people's lives and it also destroys relationships which we're about to discover. So let me pick up the story here in Genesis chapter 25. We're going to actually look at seven or eight chapters. I'm just going to give you some highlight verses. So in chapter 25, in verse 29, it says, Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. Now notice it didn't say he was starving. It just said he was hungry. He wanted something to eat, right? Everybody follow that. And the next verse says, Jacob, he says to his brother, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And that's why he's also called Edom, meaning red. It was red stew, but he was also reddish in complexion as well. And Esau is the father of what the Bible eventually describes as the Edomites, which are really related to the Jewish people, you know, the Jews, because they are in relationship. Edom is from Esau, and the Jewish people are from Jacob. Now, it says, Jacob says, now here's, here's an opportunist if I've ever seen one. Jacob says to me, tell you what, you want a bowl of stew, sell me your birthright. How many think that's kind of an unfair kind of a trade-off here? But, you know, Esau's kind of hungry. And so Esau's attitude is, hey, look, I'm about to die. How many say that's a little bit of an exaggeration? He's not about to die. But, you know, he's hungry. And basically by minimizing what he's he's about to do here. He's actually minimizing his birthright. It says, what good is my birthright to me if I'm going to die, right? And then he goes on to say, Jacob says, well, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Now, I want to say this. In the next verse here in chapter, uh, verse 34, we have a very rare thing in the Bible. The narrator of the story gives us a commentary and usually you don't have that. A lot of times we read the Bible, you don't know if God's for something or if God's against this behavior. They're just telling you what people are doing. Here we actually have a commentary on his on what God thinks of this. So Esau despised his birthright. In other words, he didn't think it was that big of a thing. He, he actually traded it off for a bowl of stew. Really kind of a bad trade, right? And I think the reason he did that was he says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to still get all the blessings. I'm going to get all of the stuff anyways. He's just, you know, pulling on Jacob's chain. But when he made that, when he swore, God took that to heart. And God is telling us he was minimizing that which was extremely important. You say, well, what is a birthright anyways? Well, the firstborn were usually awarded greater blessing because in the ancient times they were awarded greater responsibility. So Esau here is seen as having more of a concern for the momentary situation. And, you know, in a sense, he really did despise what God had basically given him by order of his birth. And he minimized it. And so we have this little commentary. And so he actually did not value what God valued. And because of that, the book of Hebrews describes Esau as a profane person. A profane person is someone who has no concern about the things of God. So he just wrote it all off as meaning absolutely nothing. Later on, we're going to find out he's not going to be happy with that decision. How many know when you live in the moment and you, you, know, you, you don't defer gratification and sometimes you say, hey, this is really important. I'm just going to go without eating for a little bit. I'll get something to eat a little later. And, but he didn't do that. And so 
you know, again, we have another commentary in the book of Hebrews regarding his thinking. I like what Griffin Thomas says about that. He said, Esau's essential sin was that he left God out of his plans. And that's always problematic in our life when, you know, we're just doing our thing. We're just, you know, we leave God out of what's going on in our lives. Now, we're going to look at, in a moment, a secondary issue or second incident that created an almost intolerable situation for these two brothers. And it literally shatters their family life. Now, isn't that true in most relationships? It's not the first thing. It's usually many things. And usually there's a triggering point. You know, sometimes people do things and it seems like really out of character but based on what really happened at that moment. But what people don't understand is things are building. And when we don't address past things and we just let them build, eventually we're going to have an explosion in life. It, it just comes back to haunt you. And so we're, we're living today in an hour of many broken relationships. We see, you know, marriages are crumbling. We see family relationships. We see friendships going by the wayside. You know, it takes a lot of skill to build relationships. Isn't that true? And we're going to talk about some of the things that help us facilitate healthy relationships. And then we're going to look at some things that help deteriorate relationships. And all of us in this room recognize one thing. We're not designed to live alone. We're not designed to live on an island. We're not designed not to have social contact. It's very important that you and I have people in our lives that we feel loved by and we love and there's a commitment and there's a development of a relationship that's meaningful and enduring. And so I want to take a look today at you know this whole issue of relationships. You know what makes relation, uh, reconciliation so often so difficult is that many of us maintain our rights. You know, we have a sense that I've been wronged and I want to maintain the right. And out of hurt and out of pride, inability to forgive or an unwillingness to work through problems, many relationships end up being destroyed and they never recover. There's no reconciliation. And so I wrote down in my notes here, today we don't run away from relational issues, we just walk away. And it's done very easily. And I see it done all the time. You know, it's no big thing. People are just walking away. And the tragedy is how we treat each other is the, really the, the essence of our relationship with God. And I did say that a little bit this morning in communion because I believe that's true. God says, how can you love me who you do not see and hate those that you are made in my image and that are right before you? The way we treat people around us is really the essence of how we're treating God. But we don't see it that way. So when people are treating other people poorly, they're really treating God poorly. That's how God takes it. And we need, we'll see that in a few minutes. So I want to take a look here at two things we need to understand so that we can move from broken relationships to reconciled, restored ones. Anybody interested in trying to find a way to bring about reconciliation and restoration in difficult situations? And I think that this story we will see how that comes about. I believe there's a key to restoring really difficult relational problems. Okay, so let's take a look at the two things we need to understand. The first is simply the underlying problems that lead to broken relationships. So how did it happen? How did this occur? Well, you know, relational difficulties usually are long-standing and deep-rooted. And the first issue is not understanding and accepting God's purposes for our lives. You know, you have to remember that God had promised Rebecca that the younger child would serve the older child. So she knew that, okay? 
Now, when God says something to us, it doesn't mean that you and I always have to go help God make it happen, you know? And we're going to see what Rebecca kind of does. Now, it's interesting. This is done in the book of Genesis. You know, the book of Malachi is towards the end of the Old Testament. It's just before the New Testament, about 400 years. So literally over a thousand years has gone by. And here's Malachi's assessment of what happened in the book of Genesis. It's a very difficult passage. It's found in Malachi 1-2. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? The Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob. The next verse is the difficult one. But Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Now, you look at this verse and you go, whoa, wait a minute. Well, first of all, let me unpack a few things here so we get what's going on here. Number one, he's talking about the people who are descendants of Jacob and Esau, which is now Israel and Edom. Edom. And God is saying, I favored Jacob. I had a special purpose in mind for them. Now that word, I have hated, how many think that's kind of strong language? You know, and in our culture today, we would go, wow, God hates people? No, let me explain it. It's a figure of speech. And we find it said by Jesus. Jesus is going to use the same figure of speech in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Listen to what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I got to ask a question. In, in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So now, is the Bible contradicting itself by saying in one breath, Love your wives, and here in Luke, we're to hate our wives? No, I think we have to understand what Jesus is saying. So, what is he really saying? This is an expression of contrast. What he is saying, in light of how much more we should love God, it will seem that we actually hate everything else. So this is an idea of priority. It's giving us an understanding here that we have to basically love God more than we love our father and our mother. Okay? God has to be the first priority. We must love God above our wife or our husband. Sometimes we we put people ahead of God, and that becomes idolatry, and we get into all kinds of trouble. You know, it's really fascinating to me. When we love God so much more than we love our family, we're actually loving our family so much better. And when we put our family ahead of God and we make them the idol, we're actually loving them less than we think we are. But we don't see it at the time. But what we're actually doing is setting it up to diminish and destroy our own family because we've put the wrong thing in the, in the, in the wrong order. And so what we need to understand is when I love God with everything inside of me, including loving him above myself, which means what, pastor? It means this, that when I desire something and God's word says, no, I want you to desire something else, that I choose to go against my natural inclination and become obedient to what God wants me to do. That's how I love God more than I love myself. And by the way, when you do that, you're doing what's best for yourself. And you're actually technically loving yourself far more because whenever you love God above yourself, you're doing what's very the very best for yourself and you're actually expressing the highest level of love. 
But we don't understand that at the time because sometimes we have the wrong order of things and it creates problems. So what did it mean back there when God says, I loved Jacob over Esau? What it meant was God had a very different purpose for Jacob. God had a unique purpose for him. It wasn't that he was better than Esau because he's not. We're going to see that Jacob is a scoundrel in many ways. He does all kinds of wrong things. It just meant that God says, I'm going to select Jacob above his brother because I have a purpose in his life to bring the Messiah through the lineage of Jacob and not through Esau. As a matter of fact, if Jacob fulfills his perfect per, his purposes perfectly, he will be a blessing to Esau and he'll be a blessing to all the other people on the face of the earth. And you know what? Jacob failed. Yeah, he did. He failed in that. And we'll see that. Now, let's take a look at Jacob's deception in chapter 27. Here's the incident that really triggers things and really moves the two brothers further apart. It starts here in chapter 27, when Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see. That's a fancy way of saying he was blind. You know. He said, my son, here am I, he answered. Isaac is now talking to Esau. I'm an old man and I don't know the day of my death. Now then get your equipment, your quiver and bow, go out to the open country to hunt hunt down some game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like to bring it to me so that, and I'll eat, so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now Rebecca was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So she's eavesdropping on the conversation. So what is he asking for? He says, why don't you go out and get me what I I love? You know, it's his son. He's excited. He's going to give him a blessing. And Rebecca decides, I'm going to get that blessing for Jacob. So she comes over to Jacob. She says, listen, Jacob, your your brother's gone out. He's gone hunting. When he comes back with the food, his dad's going to give him the blessing. Here's what we're going to do. I want you to go in and pretend you're Esau so you get the blessing. Whoa, mom, this is not good. Listen, how are we going to do this? You know, if my dad finds out that I'm pretending to be Esau, I'm not going to get a blessing. I'm going to get a curse. She goes, don't worry about it. If he does that, I'll take the curse. She says, just do what I say. So he says, well, you've got another problem. Dad may be blind, but he knows I'm a smooth, fair-skinned person, and my brother's skin is going to be hairy. And when he grabs on to give that blessing, he's going to grab onto my smooth skin. He's going to know it's me, Jacob, not his brother, not his son, his favorite son, Esau. Don't worry about that. She kills the animal, puts the skin on his arms and on his neck. And so he goes in and pretends he's Esau. This is the story. You can read it this afternoon. And they, the deception works. Now Esau's having a little problem. He goes, I mean, sorry, Isaac's having a little problem. He goes, you know, the voice sounds like Jacob. But he said, now that he's holding on to him, but he says, you know, you're hairy, like Esau. Yeah, no, I'm Esau, Dad. So he's, he's, he's trying to pull off this deception on his father. How many think that's kind of a nasty thing to do to deceive your dad? You know? So this is not nice behavior, guys. We need to understand this. God is not condoning this, by the way. This is not what God had in mind when he said he's going to choose Jacob over Esau. What we need to understand, if God promises us something, we don't have to do it at the expense of others. God is able to bring that into our lives. It's the way he said he would do it. We don't have to do it by taking other people out. And we're going to see what kind of a problem this creates. So eventually, 
he gets out of there just as Esau's coming into the tent. They just miss each other. I don't know. Good movie. I'd make it by moments. You know, be it all, our hearts are beating, right? He, Esau goes in with the food. His dad, he goes, hey, I got your food. He says, whoa, I just ate. He goes, what do you mean you just ate? I just got it. You know, because the father said, well, how'd you get it so soon? The other one said, well, God provided it for me. Boy, Jacob, what a little liar you are, you know, rascal. So Esau comes in and now his dad says, well, you know, I just gave your brother your blessing. What? He said, well, dad blessed me anyways. He says, no, I can't because I made him over you. I did all these good things to him and you don't have anything left. And all of a sudden you find that Esau's crying, begging his father to bless him because he says, I hate my brother because this is the second time he's cheated me out of something. And the Bible says he began to nurse a grudge against his brother. So what's his response? Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And he said to himself, the days of mourning from my father are near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. So in other words, he thought, okay, Jacob's going to be around for a few more days, but you know, not forever. He's going to pass away, and after that, I'm just going to kill my brother, because I don't want to add more grief to my father. Because, you know, he does know, you know, Isaac does love Jacob, so he doesn't want to add that sorrow to his father, because he does love his dad. I don't think Esau and Rebekah had a good relationship. Anybody get a feeling? That probably got really disintegrated in a hurry, especially when he found out her part of the scheme, right? Now, how many know that when you're nursing grudges, they eventually come out? Does anybody know that? Do you know when you take your emotions and you suppress them, they will come out at an inopportune moment? I had that experience once. You know, I I remember years ago, I just had finished high school. I was in university. And my mother and I, we were looking at cars, and I wanted to buy a 1973 Camaro. I was one year old. My mother talked me into buying a 1974 Vega. (laughs) Now, some of you have no idea what that is, but it was one of the worst cars that Chevrolet ever made. Had a block engine, had all kinds of problems with this vehicle. She have just went with my gut instinct. The 73 Camaro would have been great. Anyways, but, you know, I wanted to honor my mother. And, you know, she said, hey, you buy this car. It's got less miles. It's cheaper. It was actually cheaper than the one-year-old car. I should have told you something, Mom. But anyways, I buy the Vega. And that car caused me so much grief. And eventually, before we got married, this, is, this was the condition. I, I proposed to Patty. And she said, look, I'll marry you on one condition. I said, what's that? We get rid of the Vega. <laughs> so we got rid of the Vega. That was, a, that was an easy condition to meet. So, yeah. Anyways, one day I'm in Bible college with Patty. And, and uh, my brother Guy comes along and he says, hey. He, he lives an hour north of Seattle. Comes down he says, what are you doing this afternoon? I said, oh, I have a little free time. He says, why don't we go car shopping? I go, I don't have any money. I'm not going to buy another car, you know. But he loves cars, and he's a kind of a wheeler dealer personality. And I think he had about six or seven cars. I had about one, you know. He's just like burning through cars. He's really into it. He's, I said, okay, we'll go. And so I get there, and I'm cool. Everything's fine until the, until the poor sales guy started telling me how good Chevy products were. You see, I had not resolved the Vega issue. <laughs> You know, and so he's going on and on about how great these products are, and I'm get, and for some reason it feels like there's a volcano rising up within me, you know, and he would not stop, 
And I was getting madder and madder as I'm listening to him tell me how great Chevrolet, they back up their products, blah, blah, blah. And I'm going, he didn't know I had bought a Vega. So anyways, eventually I got so upset with him, I just unloaded for about five straight minutes. My wife had never seen me so angry. I'd been married for about a year and a half. Never seen that side of me. My brother and my wife are so embarrassed. They're dying. You know, I, you know, later on, I mean, it was irrational behavior. I'm just unloading on this guy, telling him that you guys made the worst possible vehicles, a piece of junk. I had so much problem. You didn't back. I mean, on and on. My brother and my wife are dragging me out of the room, you know. You know, you know. I felt bad afterwards, you know, but just... That's what happens when you don't address the junk in your, in your life. Somebody's going to come along and bump the button. And all of a sudden, it's going to come pouring out because you have not addressed those kind of grudges. Well, you know what's inside of us does come out of us. And so eventually, probably somebody said to Esau, man, you're handling this really cool. Man, your brother just took your blessing. And uh, Esau says, yeah, well, just wait till dad dies. Just wait till my dad dies. Jacob's going to find out what I really think. And so Rebecca got wind of where uh, Esau was really at. He was nursing this grudge. Now, meanwhile, Esau had married two women that mom and dad weren't happy about. How many know that doesn't raise your stock with your family? They're a little upset about that. And so Rebecca comes to Isaac and says, listen, we got to get Jacob married off here. And we don't want any of the girls from around here. We're going to send him back to my hometown and we're going to find a wife for him. And sure enough, they send him away. Now, you need to know something. At this moment, that's the last time Rebecca is ever going to see Jacob again. She dies before he comes back. 20 years later, she's dead. Number two, can you imagine now she's lost her favorite son and now she's living with Isaac, who's blind, and the other son who holds... I mean, I'm sure he knew what went down, and I don't think that was a nice relationship between mom and son. What do you think? Lots of tension going on under those tents right there in the, in the desert. And the wages of sin is always death, you know, and it causes separation. It causes separation in this relationship. And our problems always come uh, when uh, we advance our causes and ambitions at the expense of others. Well, let me move on a little bit down the road here, 20 years go by. Jacob is now married, Rachel and Leah. He's worked 14 years for free for two wives from his uncle Laban. Oh, by the way, remember I told you that Jacob really liked to manipulate and get his way? He just met his match and his uncle Laban. Laban changed his wages 10 times, okay? So it was not good. And then about the 14th year, Laban figured out that the reason why he was prospering was because he had his son-in-law working for him. And he said, hey, name your wages. He said, look, I'll just take the weaker animals over here, whatever thing they were. But God started blessing Jacob because he could see he was being cheated by Laban. And pretty soon his flocks were flourishing. And guess what? New problem began to emerge. In chapter 31, Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all his wealth from what belonged to our father. Now, why would the sons be upset with that? Because they stood to inherit. And they're just saying, hey, we just, we're losing over here. And then it says, and Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. How many know Jacob's got relational issues everywhere he turns? Now he's got his father-in-law upset with him. And then he hears the word of the Lord that says, go back to the land of your fathers, to your relatives, and I will be with you. Now you think that, you know, Jacob had have a little relational skill by now, but you know what he does? He decides instead of telling Laban he's heading for home, he just hightails it out of there without even telling him. 
And that creates a whole problem. You read that in chapter 31 and into chapter 32. Laban comes racing after him. and goes, what's this deal? You, he caught up to him after about a week. He says, why'd you take my kids out of here? Blah, blah, blah. And, you, you know, and, and so there was a little bit of a difficulty there. But God, in his grace, gave Laban a dream and said, don't speak evil or good towards Jacob. Don't say anything to him. And because Laban had a vision from God, he just backed down. And so Jacob was free to go on. Now, let's move on to the second point. Two things we need to understand. One, the problems that are leading to these broken relationships. Now we're going to look at the right attitude and actions that influence change in damaged relationships. This is the solution part of the message. So what's the beginning of changing and restoring a broken relationship? In chapter 32, uh, verse 3, it says there, that Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau. Let's pick that up. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. Notice how he's using these framing words. This is my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban and I have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. Now notice the language. Number one, he took initiative in bringing about a restored relationship. How many see that? It's Jacob that's taken their initiative. And Jesus says something very fascinating on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. What are you supposed to do? Leave your gift there at the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. In other words, God says, look, I am not going to listen to what you're going to say if you have an outstanding relational problem. You remember that Lord's Prayer thing? You know, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Remember that part? Well, God is saying, you've got to go deal with that stuff. And if you know somebody has ought against you, you need to, if you know that, go to them and make, make it right. Resolve that issue. Then come back and worship God. Because until that point, God's not listening. And then in chapter 18 of Matthew's Gospel, it says, if you have... If you've been wounded by somebody, somebody's hurt you, you've been offended by them, you're to go to that person and try to resolve that issue. How many are catching on that God puts the pressure on us to take the initiative no matter what's going on? Either I'm the one that's been wounded or I'm the guilty party. If I'm the innocent or guilty party, God goes, go take the initiative. Restore the relationship. How many see that? It says that in the scripture. So that's step number one. So what's Jacob doing? He's, he's broaching his brother. I like what he does. He doesn't come and, you know, remember the promise, I'm going to be over the Esau. I'm, he's going to serve me. That's not the language that I'm hearing from Jacob here. He says, tell my Lord Esau that his servant Jacob. Note how many are catching on. He's coming in humility. He's not exercising his rights. He's just humbling himself before his brothers because he knows that he is in the wrong. How many know that Jacob knows he did not do his brother a good turn? And he's trying to straighten this thing out. Now, look what happens. He says, I hope I find favor in his eyes. Well, that's not what the scripture says. Next verse, verse 8. When the messenger returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau and he's now coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. 
Now, I don't know about you. I can understand having maybe 15, 20 guys coming with Esau. You know, it might be a few bandits along the way. But when you bring 400 people, that's a little intense, right? And the next verse tells you how Jacob responded to the news. It says, in great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups. And he said... Uh, and the flocks and the herds and the camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that has left may escape. So what he was thinking is, this is not good news. I mean, if Esau is showing up at 400, I don't think, I, I think they're all armed, but it doesn't say it in the scripture, but let's face it. In those days, they were probably armed. 400 men are showing up. This is not going to be good. Jacob now is into plan B. You know, how am I going to save my legacy and family? I'll divide him into two groups. If one group gets attacked, the other group might be spared. Because, you know, Esau doesn't know how many people we are. Doesn't know how much I've got going on. He's hoping to get away with this, right? Wow. If we're going to restore broken relationships, the one thing we can't do is exercise our rights. You have to think about it. If we exercise our rights, relationships will never be restored. That's that's the thing I learned about God. How does he restore a relationship with broken humanity? He's not the guilty party. He has every right to stay estranged from us as human beings. He could have just left us die and rot in our own sins. But God wanted to restore this relationship with us. So what does he do? He lays aside his rights and he becomes a man and he dies in our place. That's an amazing message of restoration. We need to understand that. Now, We can say, well, I have a right to be angry. I was taken advantage of. Well, let's take a look at Esau's response. I think it's amazing. Verse 32, verse 6. Well, we've already talked about the 400 men. Okay. Now, Jacob is going to respond back. He hears the news. So here's the right response. Verse 9. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I'm going to make you prosper. God, this doesn't look like that's happening that way. This, your promise at this moment does not seem to be reality. Ever had that experience where God is promising and what you're experiencing are two different things? See, that's what's happening here. I'm unworthy of all the kindnesses and faithfulness you've shown your servant only... I only had my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Wow. So what is he saying? He's saying, God, this is what you're telling me my future is, but this is what I'm looking at my future. It doesn't look very promising. i got 400 guys showing up with my brother, and it doesn't look good. Now, I want to fast forward all the way to uh, a verse in chapter 33, verse 4. And then I'm going to come back and explain how we got here. In 33, verse 4, when Esau saw Jacob, it says, he ran to meet his brother and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And they were weeping. How many think that's an amazing meeting? You know, let me, let me. Esau ran to meet Jacob, embraced him, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. How many think that does not look like what was about to happen? How many they were reconciled? Esau ran up; he was so happy to see me, just threw his arms around, and started crying. Okay, let's go back a little bit. Esau's coming with four hundred men. Jacob's terrified. And it doesn't look good for Jacob. I, I personally don't think, I don't think Esau was coming to give him a hug. 
So something happened that changed Esau. And the question is, what happened? And here's the answer. Let's go back. I bring that up because I'm trying to show you something that I think is really, really amazing. You say, why do, why do I think that that was not what was going to happen? Because I go back to Esau was a very profane person. He was an ungodly person. He had no thought. He was no fear of God in his eyes. So this, this is not what's going to motivate him. How do, you, how do you handle a situation where you go, this person is not in the right square. I, I don't have confidence in this person to do me good, just like Jacob didn't. Even though Jacob knew he deserved to be treated poorly, and he was trying to appease his brother by sending gifts. How many know when you're in the wrong and you're trying to appease a person, you're sending them gifts, what does that usually do? Makes people more upset, usually, right? You're trying to buy me off. Isn't that true? That's what he was trying to do. He's trying to buy him off. But it wasn't going to work. I don't think it was going to work. So now, what happened? Jacob was left alone. He sent all of his family across this little brook, Jabuk. And there was a man with him that wrestled with him till daybreak. Now, we're going to find out who this man is. This man is none other than the Lord himself. He's an angel of the Lord. He's, an, he's a messenger. He's actually God himself in the form of a man. Theologians call this a theophany. Regardless, it says here, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. The man there being God himself. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Okay. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob but Israel because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. You've prevailed. Jacob said, please tell me your name. And he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. And Jacob called the place Peniel, saying it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. In other words, Jacob realized this was not a human being he was wrestling with. This was the Spirit of God. This was actually him wrestling with God. It's a picture for us of what real prayer is when we're in a crisis moment. It becomes a wrestling match, just like Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember when he was crying out and he said, God, there's there's got to be another, Father, there's got to be another way to save humanity. I don't want to drink this cup. You know, I don't want to be you know, forsaken by you. I, I don't want fellowship to be broken off. But not my will, but yours be done. And three times Jesus prayed that way. So, what is really interesting was that God was losing the fight. How many think that's fascinating? He wouldn't let him go. Jacob was prevailing. He was, but God is losing. And I believe that God loses in our lives, every time you and I do our will rather than his, God loses that battle. You go, why is God losing that battle? Because what God wants for us is good, but whenever we go self-will versus God's will, we get into trouble. God loses whenever we put ourselves first. God loses whenever we exercise our rights rather than surrendering our rights and becoming more like him. You see, we prevail with God when we surrender to him. So what does God do? He blesses them, but in the midst of that conflict, he did something in Jacob's life. He crippled him. Because after that, from that point on, Jacob walks with a limp. Now, isn't that amazing that Jacob now comes to his brother at the weakest moment of his life? Because if you're going to have a fight with one guy, you don't want to be limping. And he was limping because he had already had a fight all night with God. But God said, because you've prevailed with me, 
You're not only going to prevail with me, you're going to prevail with men. So here's what you need to know. How do you go about bringing about transformation and change in relationships? That's the question I raised today. It's real simple. Here it comes. For most of us, our prayers go something like this. God, would you please change my wife? Change my husband? Can you please change my kids? Can you change my employer? See, we're always praying for change to happen in somebody else's life. But what really what God wants to do is change us. And you see, I think what happened that night was Jacob was changed. Jacob had an encounter with God that changed him, and he no longer became so focused on his will, his rights, his way. Rather, he prevailed with God because he surrendered to God's purpose, and Jacob was changed from that moment on. And when you and I begin to change in our lives, the people around us begin to respond to us differently. How many know that's true? You see, we're so busy trying to change other people, we never see anything happen. But the moment something changes inside of us, the people around us begin to respond to us differently. That's what really needs to change, is us. And that's, what the, the whole, that's the whole focus of how to go about restoring relationships. You see, if we continue in our current track and the other people continue in their current track, nothing is going to change. And the only way change is going to come about is somebody has to move. And the key to making it happen is we have to humble ourselves, lay down our rights, surrender to the will of God, allow God to change us so that we can begin to to relate to people in a different way than what we have been relating to them in the past. Broken relationships stem from sin and selfishness. That's the truth. We have pride. You know, we want to nurse our rights, our hurts, our grudges. Maybe we're dealing with the fear of the other person. We lack an attitude of humility, forgiveness, and above all else, if we're going to see transformation, there needs to be a prayer that brings about a transformation in our lives, just like it happened to Jacob. So I'm going to have a stand as we close the service. And I was just thinking, you know, as we we kind of go through life, I believe God wants to do a work of grace in our life. Now think about how long this relationship was broken. Jacob and Esau were estranged from each other. They were apart from each other for 20 years. And you know what's interesting? Isn't it amazing? Like sometimes I get back to people I haven't seen in years and it's like we've never left it off. It's just like we're right back to where we were. And years can go by. There's some relation. You just walk up and you just pick up where you left off. Isn't that an amazing thing? But that's also true in a negative way. If we haven't resolved some past things, we come into somebody and we still feel the old wounds, the old hurts, the old pain. Isn't that true? Yeah, we haven't addressed it. It's still there. And you know what's sad about bitterness is? Bitterness poisons us. And it affects our relationship, not just with that individual, but a whole bunch of other people. Now you think about it. I was bitter about that car deal, right? That salesperson never sold me that car. You know? My bitterness had a negative impact on somebody that was a totally innocent party in many ways. Nothing to do with it. What I was doing was totally irrational. But that's the nature of bitterness. We end up, you know, affecting relationships beyond the one that wounded us. 
And I, and I, and I, as you walk through life, you see this. A lot of hurt and angry and bitter people. And you know what they're doing? They're keeping people far away from them. Because you know what? They're wounded. They're like a porcupine. You get close to them, you're going to get, you're going to feel the pain of it, right? Come on. That's the way it works. And so right now in this room, I believe the Spirit of God is speaking. Because remember we prayed. We said, Lord, can you speak to me? And right now, maybe there's people coming to your mind. You say, you know, this person hurt me. This person hurt me. i got to let that stuff go. If I'm going to have healthy relationships, I've got to change. See, we think, if I'm going to have healthy relationships, that other person's got to change. Now, we've got to change. Now, if we've gone to the person, and you know what? They don't want anything to do with us. Then we've done our part. Paul says, if at all possible, to live at peace with all men. If at all possible. So we've done everything we can do. You know, there's relationships that do come to an end. Maybe we've done everything we could on our part. We've humbled ourselves. We've gone. We've asked for forgiveness. They've just shut us up. I understand that. That happens. But a lot of times we just haven't done the work. We haven't gone. We haven't addressed the stuff. And so with every head bowed this morning, maybe you're here today. and Right now, you're, you know, people are popping into your mind. You just say, you know what? I've been wounded by this person. I just need to let this stuff go. And that's you today. Just raise your hand. I'm going to pray with us. Yeah, there's hands going up. Yeah, lots of people. It's true. Yeah. This is real stuff, folks. You know, how many here say, you know what? I want to change so that, you know, I said in the first service, how many here you've met a difficult person before? Raise your hand. Anybody ever met a difficult person? Come on, let's be honest. Anybody met a difficult person before? How many of you could say that's the difficult person is me? Oh, yeah. I'm the difficult person. See, we got to stop thinking as everybody else is the difficult person. Maybe that person is me. Look at Jacob. Jacob was a kind of a rascal. Yes, he had a heart for God. Yes, God, you know, he was a follower of, of God, right? But he did a lot of things that weren't right. Didn't he contribute to the problem? Of course he did. You know, and how was it change going to happen? God had to change Jacob. And you know what God said at the end of that prayer? I'm going to change your name, Jacob. You're going to be named Israel rather than Jacob. That's what we want to do today. How many here say, you know what? I want to have such a change in my life that actually God, when he looks down, he says, I've changed your name now. I've given you a new name because now you're a new person. There's been a change inside of you. There's healing inside of you so that your relationships can now be different than they were before. Healthier, stronger, better, more loving. Let's pray to that end. Amen? See, oh, you, it's, it's between you and God. I don't know where you're at, but God does. If you open your heart to Him and say, Lord, I want to change right now. I want to, I want to allow a transformation in my heart to have my relationships transformed around me. That's my prayer this morning. Lord, do that work in me. I'm a pastor. I'm going to pray for that. Do that work in me. I want to change, Lord. I want to become more like you. Lord, I, I don't want to be irritated or frustrated or anxious or angry or upset or uptight. Lord, I don't want any of those things in my life. I want to have meaningful, healthy, loving, forgiving type of relationships. Because, Lord, I need those, and I know we all do. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for all those that are hearing my voice right now, that as they open their heart to you, your spirit will come in and help heal the wounded areas, Lord, and to open our hearts to see change coming within us, Lord.
that we'll be far more forgiving, more understanding, more gracious. We'll take more initiative, Lord. We'll have healthier relationships. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.